All right, we are in the book of 1 John, if you'll turn there with me, to 1 John chapter 5. Just this week I was reminded of how pertinent this series is to the current Christian climate and community here within the United States of America. Today, many Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. They are concerned. They want to know for sure that they have eternal life. That is a good question to wrestle with. Over the last 30 years, there have been teachings inadvertently trying to alleviate that question in the Christian's mind to the point where they no longer ask it ever. And I feel that that is inconsistent with biblical teaching. I don't say that a Christian needs to constantly be worrying about this subject. But I do believe that a Christian needs to examine themselves to make sure that they are in the faith. We find from Paul, from John, from Peter, each of these writers give us indication that examining ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith is something that needs to be done at one time or another. I believe that an individual who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ is secure in that faith. However, though, there are many within the body of, uh, with, uh, assembled with the body of Christ who have professed Christianity, and yet they themselves are not saved. They are not saved because they truly have not repented of their sins, received Christ as their Savior, and allow that new birth to take place. And therefore, as a result, they are Christian by name alone, but they are indifferent to the things of God. It is these individuals that we certainly do not want to give a false sense of security to, but at the same time, we want to assure those who are in the faith of their eternal life and challenge those who are not in the faith but believe that they are, to re-examine themselves that they may know for certain that they have eternal life. Now again, we would not presume to do this without scriptural authority. That scriptural authority comes from 1 John. This letter that John wrote was an explanation, it, was, it expounded upon his gospel in which he wrote. And I believe, and I agree with those that write that he is truly explaining John 15. John 15 gave everyone a moment of pause when he indicated the necessity of abiding in Christ. And if you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, you might have been troubled by it at some point as you read through it. And I believe that John is answering those questions of concern through the first letter that he has written here, the book of 1 John. At the end of the Gospel of John, he ends by saying, I have written this that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now he ends his first letter with this intention. Verse 13 of chapter 5, and we begin here each and every time we open this letter to remind ourselves of the writer's initial intention concerning the letter. I write these things to you, verse 13, chapter 5, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He is writing to believers in Jesus Christ that you may know that you have eternal life. 
He wants us to nail down this subject. He wants us to know for certain that we are truly saved and are in Christ. And he's writing to those who are believers. For in John's day, what was happening is that there was an exodus from those who were gathered with the body of Christ. And as people were leaving because they were being drawn away by false teachers who claimed that they had significant, special revelation from God, that they themselves were the only ones who carried the true knowledge of the methodology of salvation. And through their personal enlightenment, could one be saved? Now, they only disclosed that enlightenment to those who would then follow them, who would become part of their following. John sees these individuals departing. And he is writing concerning this. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 is a good indication of that departure. As these people departed, John says they were simply demonstrating that we are number one in the last days, and number two, that they never were truly of us. But he is assuring you and I in the wake of that context, he is stating that we can know for certain that we have eternal life and therefore we are not needed, we we do not need to look anywhere else for it. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. When Peter had his opportunity to depart from walking and continuing following the Lord, he said to Jesus, he said, where else shall I go And who else shall I follow that has the words of eternal life? Peter knew that there was no one else in which he could follow that would lead him in the manner in which he needed to be led. And so John is now reiterating that. You don't need some new thing. God has given us all that we need in the person of Jesus Christ. Now it is just... Uh, of necessity that we know for sure that we have this eternal life and once we come to that assurance we can then begin to move forward and to grow in our christian faith knowing that there isn't something more out there that is still yet to be revealed or some secret group has it that you need to be part of everything you need for life and godliness everything you need to know about the lord jesus christ is found in the bible There's no extra revelation that is needed. In fact, every cult in America has added some type of special revelation to lure people away. For example, we have the Book of Mormon. For example, we have the Watchtower Society for the Jehovah's Witnesses that claim to give extra revelation, special revelation to the knowledge of the Scriptures. But that's not necessary. We have all that we need in the person of Christ and all of that is found within the scriptures that you have on your lap. So throughout his first letter to assure people of their inclusion and, their, and them obtaining salvation in Jesus Christ, he gave them three tests. One was a moral test, the one was a social test, and one was a theological test. And he develops on all three of these throughout chapters 2, 3, and 4 of this letter. Now to help you remember those in maybe a little bit easier fashion, he asks us three questions. Do we live like Jesus? Do we love like Jesus? And do we think like Jesus? 
Those are the questions he asks us to assure us if we are in, to determine, I should say, if we are in Christ Jesus or not. Number one, do we live like Jesus? Number two, do we love like Jesus? And number three, the theological point, do we think like Jesus? And as we continue today, we find ourselves in chapter 3. And we begin in verse 11. And as we will see, as he has just moved us through verses 1 through 10, asking us again and expounding upon his initial premise, he asks us the question in verses 1 through 10, do we live like Jesus? Do we live righteously? As a demonstration of our regeneration in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we're living like Christ, he's determining that we are then in Christ and that we have been changed by Christ. For one who is not in Christ has not been changed by Christ and therefore will not live like Christ. That's what he's saying in verses 1 through 10. But there's this interesting relationship between righteousness in the Bible and love. It is something that I wish was developed further in the commentaries that are written and also in the theological books that are written concerning righteousness, this element of love that is intertwined, uh, it is absolutely merged together, it's fused together. You really can't have one without the other. And once we discover the relationship between righteousness and love, which John easily moves into now that he asks, do you love like Jesus loved? He first asked us, do we live like Jesus lived? Now he asks, do we love like Jesus loved? And as we begin in verse 11, we are going to be seeing this conjunction of righteousness and love intertwined with one another. I will go as far as to say that I don't believe that we can live righteously properly if we are not governed by love. And then I will go on to say that if we are truly governed by love, we cannot, uh, then we will live righteously. They work hand in hand together. Now let me give you a couple of scriptural examples of this. And I want you to make note of this because as you go through the New Testament, understand the relationship between righteousness and love. And then consider for a moment righteousness apart from love. And you get a completely different picture. But when the righteousness is encapsulated by love, which it is in God, it changes completely. But listen to what Jesus said here in the great commandment of Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and, gathered, and they gathered together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But verse 40 is where the righteousness is then found. And on these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. Think about that for a moment. Righteousness accompanied with love. The beginning of this, the totality of the law and of the prophets is found in this the sentiment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that the purpose of the law was to show our guilt, our unrighteousness, and an ability to cover that unrighteousness in the temporary sacrifices of the animals to allow us to interact, allow them to interact with God. Now God is saying that the righteousness that he is looking for is a righteousness that is birthed out of this love that number one, we have for God, and number two, we have for one another. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. This is where it all begins. This is where it all stems from. Our love relationship with God and our love relationship with one another who are in Christ, in the body of Christ. This is where it all begins. Now, it isn't only Jesus who expounded this, but Paul furthered this idea to the Gentile community in the book of Romans 13, uh, verses 8 through 10. Read these with me. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is huge. This is huge to understand theologically. That the righteousness in which God is desiring us to, uh, to demonstrate and to uh, show within our life is birthed out of the love that we have for Him and that the love that we have for one another. This is why Paul said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am nothing. This is why Paul said that, oh, though I may know all things and have all faith and remove all mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. This is what we are shooting for here at our church. We want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to the point that everything in the world pales in comparison. We want you to love your neighbor as yourself to the point that your own selfishness pales in comparison. We want you to lose yourself in this love for the sake of Christ. We want you to lay yourself down as a living sacrifice before the Lord our God because of the love that you have for Him and that the love that you have for one another. This is huge. And you want to talk about being a beacon and light in our society and in our culture today? I'm telling you, nothing shines brighter in our culture and society today than selflessness, self-sacrifice, unconditional love. These things burn bright against a backdrop of a society that has adopted the mantra that it's all about me. 
So before we began our text and looking at our text this morning and we move into the idea of loving one another, let us understand the theological implications of love and righteousness working together to glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I have to go any further than to demonstrate and to state that he himself was the perfect representation of that, wasn't he? And so as we begin, Paul be, I'm sorry, John states that believers love other believers, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that is to love your neighbor as yourself. We established that earlier on in 1 John, that we should love one another. And then he, give us, he gives us an Old Testament example of Cain and Abel. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He wants us to compare the love that we have to that of the hatred of Cain. Cain and Abel were brothers. There should have been a natural love between them that apparently was suppressed as Cain then moved to anger and killed and murdered his brother because Abel's works were, were accepted by the Lord. His, his offering, I should say, was accepted by the Lord and Cain's was not. And in the process of the rejection of Cain's offering, his own personal unrighteousness was revealed. And as a result, Cain grew angry at his brother for the favor that God set upon him and receiving his offering and rejecting Cain's. Brothers who should have loved each other. Brothers who should have allowed that love for one another to supersede the wrong that had just occurred. But Cain allowed that love to dissipate, to be overwhelmed by anger, and he murdered his own brother. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one and that his actions were just simply a product of his own personal nature. And then he moves on into our next verse and says, Do not be surprised, verse 13 then, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now here's where it gets provoking. All of you might be relieved to know that a murderer doesn't enter the kingdom of God, and that a murderer does not have eternal life in him, and that a murderer uh, is still living in darkness and in death. And therefore you may say, well, since I have never murdered anyone, I must be okay. But what John is actually doing here is he's elevating hate and murder to the same position of seriousness. And therefore, as Jesus says, that if we hate someone, it's as if we've committed murder in our heart towards that one. Now, this is very serious. We should love one another. 
But if we are demonstrating an indifference towards one another, if we are demonstrating a disdain for one another, this is not demonstrating that we truly have been born again, that we truly have been saved. The natural affection between Cain and Abel was surpassed by the hatred because his own deeds were found wrong. He is then using this as an example to say that the world is going to look upon you in the exact same way. They are going to look upon you in that exact same manner, that your light shining is going to bring to uh, reveal the darkness within their personal life. And as Jesus said, the darkness hated the light and resisted it, ran from it. But in it, I want you to understand that the reason John selected Cain and Abel is because they were brothers. They should have loved one another. I'm growing very concerned at the number of people who are leaving churches. They call themselves part of the Duns, D-O-N-E-S, who claim with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength that they love Jesus and God, but they want nothing to do with His church. They want nothing to do with the Christian brotherhood and uh, their sisters in Christ. They just want to worship alone and independently. Some to a vast farther degree than others, but in many cases, this is the mentality in which they hold. John is saying that that's inconsistent thinking. One who is truly saved is going to have a deep love for the body of Christ. One who is uh, truly saved is going to love his brother and be willing to lay down his own life rather than to take his brother's life. If you look back to Genesis 4, 1 through 16, you're going to discover the story of Cain and Abel. And as you read through it, you're going to understand clearly in that which is revealed in the New Testament about the situation that in this particular event, we saw the very first persecution of a godly person. And it was by his own brother. And John is using it here as an example to demonstrate for us the inconsistency that it carries. As he goes on to say in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A lack of love for the children of God is evident as evidence of spiritual death. Everyone who hates to this degree, whether an active display of hostility or a passive withholding of affection, is likened to a murderer who cannot have eternal life abiding in him. And please know that we can do everything right in this world and still be hated by it. Today, the world often wants to tell us that all we need is more love in the world and more peace in the world, and the world will finally become the utopia that they've always desired it to be. Is that a true statement? Well, first of all, let's take a moment to realize that we have to define some of these words. Because the world's definition of love and that love of the Bible are two different things. The love of the world is very self-seeking in its center of its nature. But the love of Christ is self-sacrificing. 
at the center of its essence. When we talk about peace, the peace that comes from Christ is not like that of the world because it is not dependent upon circumstances. Today, our peace that the world tries to offer us is a peace that is always dependent upon our circumstances, always aligning perfectly to allow us to enjoy that moment of peace. How often does that actually happen? I don't know about you, but more and more often I feel like that guy spinning the plates on the poles and trying to keep them all going at one time. And I see the world trying to do that. And when they haven't finally got it down, after all their attempts, it's such short-lived that they only can enjoy it for a moment and then they have to start all over again trying to get all their ducks in a row, the planets to align, etc., to obtain that worldly peace once again. Jesus Christ was the perfect representation of God. And he was hated for it. He was the perfect example of peace and he was hated. He was the perfect example of love and he was hated. And therefore we have the wonderful promise in which he made to us that rarely do I find on a t-shirt or on a coffee cup, but as the world has hated me, so they will hate you also. I never see that on salt and pepper shakers at any Christian's home in which I go to. But it sure enough is a promise that we've all been given, isn't it? Now, in the backdrop of that reality, John is stating for us that our love for one another should be a beacon of light amongst that darkness, amongst that hatred, amongst that, let's say it for what it is, murder. And he wants us to demonstrate to the world what true love really looks like. I didn't state at the beginning, but I should have, that the title of my message is really loving one another. Every time I approach a passage of Scripture, I try to sum it up in a very short uh, summary sentence, uh, no more than uh, 10 words, and, you know, really loving one another. I, I just see John through this text in which we're reading here today. He goes, I want you to love one another. And we go, okay, we will love one another. No, 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 you're, I want you to really love one another. Okay, John, well, no, I want you to really love one another. And he'll demonstrate that uh, urgency and that emphasis in just a moment. But think about what Jesus said to us, another verse of promise. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. One writer said, a moment's reflection will show that hatred in and of itself is murder in embryo. I think it's interesting that the world is calling Christians haters today, isn't it? Think about the repercussions of that. Because we are not tolerant or in their, in their understanding of that word, tolerant of certain lifestyles and behaviors, we are haters. The moment we object 
to a social indiscretion that has been accepted and paraded and, and proclaimed by society. As, as soon as the Christian says, no, I believe that that's morally wrong before God, ethically wrong before God, we are deemed a hater right from the... That's how they stifle the conversation. You're simply a hater. Have you been charged with that yet? If you've stood up and said, I don't agree with gay marriage... If you stood up and said, I don't agree with abortion. If you stood up and said that you believe that um, God is the only way, or Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. You're a hater, you're a bigot, etc. Because you're rigid in your opinions and so forth. Now think about that for a moment as John is writing to us. The hatred that we are experiencing from the world is now being turned upon us and they are calling us haters for looking at them and saying, no, we believe what you are doing is wrong before the Lord. The master stroke of Satan. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Good has become evil. Evil has become good. And we are truly seeing that today. But again, for John, it was the body of Christ loving each other as Jesus Christ loved each other. And he goes on to say that believers sacrifice for other believers, verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When you read verse 16, what do you see there? What is John trying to communicate to you? It's profound in which he is moving us towards. He is giving us insight and definition to a certain word that he's been using throughout this in particular letter. Can anybody tell me what he's doing here? Definition of love. He knew through the Spirit's inspiration that the word love would change its definition as time went on. And now he is stating we know love by determining, this is interesting, that we can have a relationship in our understanding of what love is. I think that's fascinating. Because we today have reduced love to this emotion in which we have and have lost at any given moment. A fleeting feeling. But here he says that we can know love, number one, because he laid down his life for us. That phrase is used as an uh, indication of what Christ ultimately did when he laid his life down as a sacrifice on behalf of us all who are in Christ. Meaning the moment he laid down his life and went to the cross and died. But I really think that there is more to it than that. And let me explain. That event the moment that Jesus Christ laid his life on the cross for you and I is not where that event began. Do you understand that? There were many things that happened 
prior to that, that led up to that, that gave Christ the willingness to do what he was doing on our behalf. That event of his crucifixion did not creep up on him, scare him, surprise him, or he didn't simply find himself engulfed in that moment. He knew that from the moment that he was born, each and every day he was getting one step closer to his death on the cross. This phrase that John is using wasn't meant to simply uh, point to that one moment in which Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's the climax of it all. And then, of course, the resurrection is the holy cow, praise God, glory to him. But think about it for me. Jesus said often, my hour had not yet come. He knew about it before it was about to happen. But in John 17, there's a phrase that Jesus uses that we cannot ignore. He said, if this cup is, if it's possible, Lord, that this cup could pass from my hands, let it be, Father. But if not, not my will be done, but your will be done. The laying down of one's life is the self-sacrifice that one is willing to endure on behalf of another. Christ already made up his mind and his heart to submit to the Father's will. He already chose to be that sacrifice from the very beginning. And ultimately that was demonstrated in him allowing himself to be nailed to the cross. John's not only saying, should we not lay our physical lives down, but what he's saying is that we should lay our toto- the totality of our lives down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not me, but you. That's what he is saying here. We should make the mental uh, ascent to say, I am willing to forgo my own personal desires, my own goals, my own objectives for the glory of God. And that could be simply summed up in our prayer, not my will, Lord, be done, but your will be done on my behalf. Now, I think this is echoed by Paul in in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that our only reasonable response to all that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf is that we should lay ourselves down as what? What kind of sacrifices? Living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices, right? Living sacrifices. Laying our lives down for another is not just found in one event like being nailed to the cross. It is found in the totality of the life of the individual who demonstrated that type of love for us, Jesus Christ. And that all began with his submission to the Father and his will. And that's where it begins for you and I. We are not going to be able to lay down our life in that fashion until we go before God the Father and have a serious time before Him in the Word and in prayer and saying, Lord, not my will be done, but Your will be done. Think about that for a moment. The implications of that for a moment. I mean, this flies in the face of every, everything that we have been taught about self-preservation, hasn't it? Looking out for our own best interest, grabbing what is meant to be ours, getting the most out of life, so on and so forth. 
For us to willingly lay down our lives is to willingly say to God the Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. As he says in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, see, this is why it's more than just that one act. It's a mentality, it's a mindset, and so forth. But if anyone has the world's good and goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but deed and in truth. Verse 17 makes it abundantly clear that this is some more, something more than just one act. Number one, to see the needs of my brothers and sisters around me, I have to be looking for them, don't I? If I come into church and it's all about me, right? How deeply and how uh, earnestly am I going to be looking for the needs of others if I come into the church with the mentality and the mindset, what can I get out of this time? That's a consumer mentality, right? I never go to Walmart and shop for somebody else, okay? I never push my little cart around. (laughs) That's a bad picture. Push my little cart around and pick out clothes for someone else. You'd look great in this. I go there, shop for myself. I put something in my cart. I'm responsible for that. Often we go to the church with the exact same mindset, but God's saying no. God's saying he wants you to come on in and he wants you to look around. And what can you do to bless someone else? How can you give freely of that which has been given to you? How can you meet a need in a brother's life? And he goes on to say, hey, let us not just simply talk about it. Let's not have a meeting and saying, you know, we need to help the poor. Let's not just have a meeting and saying, we need to help those who are in need in our church. I stand up here this morning and I empower each and every one of you in the gospel of Jesus Christ that if you see a brother in need in our church and you have the means to meet that need for that brother, you have my permission to do it. Go for it. I don't even need to know about it. Just do it because the scriptures tell you to do it. Don't just talk about it. Don't give it lip service in a prayer meeting, hopefully that you can then alleviate your conscience because I prayed about it out loud and now hopefully somebody else will pick up the baton. Take the initiative yourself. But we will not do this if we make everything all about us. And that's exactly what he is saying here. I think that it is so interesting, the similarities between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives before the brothers, for our brothers. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That same sacrificial attitude is the attitude that will demonstrate our love for one another amongst us and will be a light onto this dark and dying world. 
And lastly, verse 19. At this point, he appears to uh, anticipate that some are growing concerned now as they are reading this. We are often comforted comforted by the fact of using examples that are reasonable and obtainable. For example, you may come into church and look who you're sitting next to and say, you know what, compared to him or her, I'm doing pretty well. You know, God's happy with me, and I'm so thankful I sat next to him today because I was feeling pretty convicted about some stuff, but then I look at him and, oh my gosh, his life's in the toilet. However, though, the standard for all of us is Jesus Christ. And often when we are confronted with his example, we are first and foremost brought to a position of humility. And that's the only position we can be brought to if we've earnestly been exposed to his example or diligently or accurately been exposed to his example. And at that point, you may start to question something. So John anticipates that, and he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Condemnation is not a method in which God uses to correct a child of God. Understand that. Condemnation separates, isolates, and discourages and dismantles a believer. Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though God doesn't work through condemnation, what he works through is conviction. And often we misinterpret that conviction as condemnation. But let us identify condemnation uh, for when it uh, appears in our lives, when it says to us, who, who are you to go to church today? Uh, you're, you really screwed up this week, okay? You, don't, you shouldn't even walk through those doors. In fact, if you do, the church is going to collapse because of the amount of sin in your life. Conviction, on the other hand, is something that stirs in our heart from the Spirit of God through the Word of God that, that tells us that what we are about to do is wrong or what we have done is wrong. And its purpose is not that of condemnation, but that of correction. Chastening, that we may turn back to God again and be forgiven of those sins. When we read this, all of us should feel a sense that maybe I haven't loved my brothers and sisters in Christ in the manner in which God would have me to love them. And that could lead to condemnation. But God knows our hearts. As one wrote, he said, John reassures sensitive consciousness. Believers should live before God, not in trembling anxiety, but in a calm confidence. And some then, like today, may have felt that such requirements stated above prohibit us from coming before the Lord and interacting with Him. As David Gusick quoted Spurgeon, sometimes our hearts condemn us, but in doing so, 
It gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case to a higher court, for God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. God knows of our imperfection. He knows that we are incapable in and of ourselves to live as He has called us to live. He has therefore given us the Spirit that we may fulfill those things that He has called us to fulfill to live as He has called us to live, to change us from the inside out, to take us from a self-centered person to a self-sacrificing person. It's a work of God in us that is greater than ourselves. Jesus knew that this kind of love, this kind of sacrifice, was not going to be obtained by simply throwing our flesh at it and then trying to live this out and do this in and of ourselves. This is something greater than ourselves. And this is the purpose that it is the indication that we are truly in the Lord. But when we are feeling that condemnation and when we have sinned against God, there is an aspect of our Christian life that has been affected and that is our prayer life, which he'll move into in just a moment. I look at it this way. When I, when, when I got married, Dean and I, you know, we were like all young people getting married. You know, everything was a fairy tale. All things were rosy and so on and so forth. And then reality hit, of course. And there are times in our marriage that Dean and I would be just so close and just toss those little nicknames across the room to one another. Hi, Schmoopy. Hello, chicken. I'll let you tell, I'll figure out who's who. But there are other times in our marriage where we are still married, but things aren't nearly as, you know, fuzzy and warm and feeling. And it's like, hey, hey. Really, you got to be in the bathroom at the same time I am? Really, you got to be at the refrigerator at the same time I am? Because there's a little maybe tense, you know, tension between us because I haven't taken out the garbage. I mean, do we really need to take it out more than once a week? Or whatever it may be? See, now think about that in our relationship with God. I was still married in both scenarios. But there are times that I'm going to be very close to the Lord in intimate communion with Him. And then there are times that I may drift away, allowing some compromise and some sin there. And I'm still in a relationship with God, but I'm somewhat distant from Him. It's not Him who is distant from me, it's me who is distant from Him. And the pathway to that closeness with God again is repentance. The pathway that allows me to be embraced by my Father once again in good pleasure is repentance. Me coming back to Him. Side note. If you've ever read the Bible, you may have never looked for what I call proximity. There's this issue of proximity from Genesis to Revelation. And it, and it moves. Genesis, we were very close to God, right? Then we sinned, and now we are very far apart from God. And then while we worship God in the Old Testament, 
there were different places within the temple a person could stand, and that was their proximity to God. And only one person could go in the Holy of Holies where God is. Then Jesus Christ came and introduced the new covenant. And the temple curtain tore from top to bottom, showing that that proximity had been uh, now eliminated, and we can be as close to God as we desire to be. The problem is not God. The problem is us and how close we want to be to God. Because the closer we get to God, the closer we get to His refining fire. The closer we get to God, the less we desire to resemble the world and we desire to reflect Him. That's what God does as we get closer to Him. So John was concerned as we move now into this last section and close out our time together that our condemnation would then interfere with our prayer life. And now that we have just seen that that condemnation is not given to us by God but also often our own heart that condemns us. That's what he is saying here in verse 19. But God is greater than our heart and shows us that there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we have kept His commandments. Which commandments are those that He is speaking of? He is speaking of to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we are living with that mentality, if we are walking in the Spirit to that degree, that in which we pray will subsidize those two and allow us to further um, love Him and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, we can be confident that we will receive that which we need in our prayer lives. And we do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Verse 23 tells us, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is huge, don't miss it, equals what? Look at what John's doing here. He can only write this from apostolic authority. He can only write this because of who he has been called to be in Christ. And this is his commandment, that we Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Isn't this interesting? What He is saying is that our belief is now defined by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what true belief in Jesus Christ looks like. Then to love one another. Isn't that fascinating? So when we talk about believe, when we talk about love, look how they're being defined by biblical illustrations rather than worldly standards. That my belief in Jesus Christ is demonstrated by my love for Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's incredible to me. That's what he is saying here. In verse 24, whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit in whom he has given us. 
William MacDonald wrote, he said, to keep his commandments is to abide in him, to live in close, vital intimacy with the Savior. When we are thus in fellowship with him, we make his will our own will. And by the Holy Spirit, he fills us with the knowledge of his will. In such a condition, we would not ask for anything outside the will of God. And when we ask according to his will, we receive from him the things we ask for. As Jesus said in John fifteen seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we close with this. This seems to summarize all of the commandments of the New Testament. It speaks of our duty to God and to our fellow Christian. Our first duty is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, because true faith is expressed in right conduct, we should love one another. This is an evidence of saving faith. This is what he is saying. And this is what we have been expounding for these last six weeks together. We must love each other as Christ has loved us by laying down our lives for one another. We must love God. I should say we must believe in Jesus Christ and that looks like to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves, And what a way to go into communion today. I think that God said it abundantly when he said we would not love him unless he first loved us. I wouldn't even know what true love is if my only representation of love was that of this world and I would say that love is self-seeking and it is simply reduced to sexual intimacy. But God says there's a love so much greater than that. It's so vastly superior to that. It's a love that would allow one to lay down their life, not only a moment of their life, but the totality of their life on behalf of someone else. That's true love. And if you say that you truly believe in Jesus Christ and He abides in you, then you should love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That is the true essence. That is why we see this relationship between love and righteousness that is so dependent one upon another. It's incredible to see this from this perspective. I cannot read a chapter like this without going before God and just laying myself before him and saying, Lord, I am so sorry for how selfish I am. 